Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Dear 2020, can we just start over? I'm Dorno Porter and I've been thinking about life in lockdown, mostly from a cupboard. My new book, Life in Pieces, is full of thoughts on everything from bad hair and parenting to things we can control and the things we can't. When everything's falling apart, we'll piece it back together. Life in Pieces is out now in hardback, ebook, and audiobook. Hi, I'm Dorno Porter and welcome back to So Lucky, where each week I go deep with my guest and explore all of the sides to all of their stories, their highs and lows, their hopes and fears, their lucky and their unlucky moments. My guest for you this week is the wonderful Sinead Burke, a teacher, writer, broadcaster, fashion admirer and advocate for disability and design. In our conversation, we talk about Sinead's amazing work in the fashion industry. She's really quite mind-blowing. She's also both a contributing editor of British Vogue and she was on the cover of Vogue, as you will hear. I first met Sinead about, well, whenever I got married and around the time I wrote uh, Paper Airplane, she came to one of my book signings, one of my first ever book tours. And I remembered her because she was so sweet. And then um, she came to everything I ever did in Dublin and she was my fan. And now I can say that I am her biggest fan. Uh, We also talked about the fashion industry's ongoing problem with diversity and its lack of representation of different bodies and voices. But mostly we talked about her gorgeous family, who I'm desperate to have Sunday lunch with, love and the happiness of being comfortable in your own skin. So sit back, relax, because this is me, Dorno Porter, talking to the really quite incredible Sinead Burke. I'm going to acknowledge Yvonne, who's sitting in the corner. Hi! Um, so this is your first trip travelling together from Ireland? Yes. Yes, it's very exciting. So Yvonne, I was coming to LA to do the Kelly Clarkson show, uh-huh. bizarrely, and to do a couple of kind of recordings from my own podcast and to get to see a bit. And Yvonne is was born here in the US. Oh. And has been to LA a couple of times. And yeah, we thought, why not? You know, that true test of friendship. We've known each other since we were children uh-huh. but you know that like if you want to know somebody live with them and she has learned a lot about me sharing a hotel room we're not going to ask her to discuss what she's learned because <laughs> that would be problematic for everybody's yeah. reputation but okay there's been learnings um it's nice traveling with somebody yeah do you find that when you travel on your own because obviously you have certain challenges mm-hmm. with what you were just saying before that you couldn't re- reach the light switch in yeah. the hotel and just all these little things that you have to kind of um hope yeah go your way when you travel do you have to email ahead and ask for things to be done um 
I started traveling on my own probably when I was around 20. I'm 29 now. And I think initially it was probably a couple of trips to New York. Mm -hmm. And for the first few, my mother came with me to really like almost proverbially hold my hand and give me a sense of the geography of New York or could I get through an airport on my own? And when I come through the airport, being a physically disabled woman and a little person, I use the wheelchair services that I come through. So I come through the airport because I can't reach security or I find it difficult to put my bag overhead on Mm -hmm. a plane. But actually, I think having to do those things on my own has transformed me personally. Right. I kind of don't think anything is impossible. And I look at my sisters and all of my sisters and my brother are avertype. Mm -hmm. And they fit society's definition of normal, whatever that is. But I went to... New Zealand and Australia on my own for four days earlier this year. If I said for, to my sisters to do that, they'd look at me like I was bananas. Yeah. Like, absolutely not. And I think that has given me skills of independence, but also being able to ask for help and being able to approach a stranger and say, I'm really sorry. And, you know, actually in terms of like looking for things in advance in terms of access, yeah, my friends and family and the people I work with are far better than that than I am because I often forget. I forget that I need a footstool or you kindly did one today. And yeah. I didn't think to ask you of it. And then you're always conscious of like putting somebody in an uncomfortable position by looking for access because it's not a conversation we regularly have in society. But this is why you're so brilliant because <laughs> here's... Like, you've opened my eyes up to it all. I think, you know, there's been a lot of movements over the last however many years um, for all areas of society. And I feel like disability access and our understanding of what it's like for somebody like you is something that it feels like the last conversation. And so when I see you, I've been watching watching your videos for the last few days. When I see you stand so confidently and just explain very calmly to people, it's very simple things, guys. It's like, don't just offer me the chair. I can't get up on the chair. Like if you say, turn the light on, I can't reach the light switch. And just putting it into people's heads just to offer help. Yeah. The fact that you're not afraid to ask for help, that you're just saying to people, this is how you can just make it easier for people like me. It's just like, oh, because I don't think anybody wants it to be difficult for you. Yeah. But people are so fear-based that they're so scared of saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, offending, getting it wrong, looking stupid, that they just don't do anything. Mm-hmm. And that's why you opening up this conversation is so fantastic. Well, thank you. And I'm so proud of you. Oh. Because, God, when was the first time I met you? Like 400 years ago. Yeah, I stalked you. You were coming to Dublin for your first book. For paper airplanes. Yeah, and I was sat front row in a tiny venue in Dublin and I think I maybe asked you three questions at the Q&A. Like, there was a room full of people. Yeah. But I was just there, like, with my hand permanently up in the air, typical, like, primary school teacher. Yeah. Um, and was so interested in the career that you had manifested and worked hard for yourself. And, yeah, here I am. And I remember you. I remember you so clearly. And you had a blog at the time, didn't mm-hmm. you? And people seemed to kind of know who you were in Ireland. And then over the next few years, I'd noticed just because of Twitter and Instagram that you were like doing interviews with mm-hmm. people and starting to, and I was like, God, oh, good for her. You know, she's building her blog into this thing yeah. and she's making a name for herself. And then suddenly <laughs> you were on the cover of Vogue. <laughs> you're like over here on the Kelly Clarkson show. You're with Victoria Beckham doing something. You're just, I'm like, are you, I mean, you're a style icon. You're like this really unlikely and so worthy name in British fashion now. Absurd. And how the fuck did you do that? <laughs> um, Really deliberately. I'd like to sit here and be like, oh, it's... A lot of it is luck. A lot of it is incredible hard work. Are you a lucky person? I think I am. But I think I'm lucky not in the sense of things being handed to me, but 
I was luckily born into an incredible family. Right. I was luckily born to two parents who have supported what it is that I do or wish to do from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And whether that was teaching, whether that was fashion, whether that was setting up my own company, whether that's coming to LA on my own for four days, they're like, great, tell Dawn and Chris we said hi. I'm like, you don't, they don't know. <laughs> but I say hi back. Happy big waves back. And that has been extraordinary. And, you know, my brothers and sisters are amazing. I have a very close group of friends who are dotted all over the world. And I think in that sense, I'm incredibly lucky. I'm yeah. incredibly lucky that I was allowed to flourish into the person that I am. That, you know, when I said I wanted to go and say hello to somebody or introduce myself, that was encouraged. And that has given me the skill set that I now have. Mm-hmm. I've always been incredibly ambitious based on that. You know, like I'm, I've started a list when I was 18 of things that I really always wanted to do. Many of them and most of them absurd. You know, one of them was being on the cover of the September issue of Vogue. One of them was going to the Met Gala. And as somebody who was interested in fashion from such a young age, these were pillars. They were symbols of acceptance within Uh the fashion community because I grew up in a body that was never represented in popular culture. And at 29, the only real representation of people who look like me is still through the lens of fiction, be it Game of Thrones and Peter Dinklage or Warwick Davis in the UK. And there are some amazing women coming up through the system like Fran Mills and Harlots on HBO. But there is still no public consciousness of what someone like me can do with their bias. Mm-hmm. And even this morning, I was tagged in something on Twitter and it was like a, a TikTok video and it was an average height person running down the street and jumping over somebody who looked like me in the middle of the street. And, you know, I had experience of that earlier in Dublin and it's like the lack of representation of different types of voices and bodies and experiences is not only impacting ignorance, but is designing the world that we're in that's making it unsafe for some and not others. So for me, in terms of how it was done, was always thinking, why not? You know, I walked up to Anna Wintour at a New York Fashion Week show probably about four years ago. I was sitting kind of four rows behind her in like the nosebleed seats. It was probably my first time at a fashion show. And she was sat front row, of course. The show was late starting. So I got out of my seat and just walked up to her. And because she was sitting and I was standing, we were at eye level. And of course, she had the sunglasses on. And she was talking to somebody and I just stood in front of her and waited. And she turned to me and she was like, hello? And I word vomited at her. I was like, hi, my name is Sinead. It's so nice to meet you. I'm from Ireland. You were editor-in-chief of Vogue for my whole life. Like you've been in that role from since before I was born. Uh-huh. And I just wanted to thank you for the way in which you've shaped my interest in fashion. It's really nice to meet you. And I walked off. Oh and my God. I think that has been part of the family that I grew up in, kind of being given permission to be proud of myself. Mm-hmm and being kind but also being curious and it's been those moments that you never know what something will lead to I mean I was sitting at the Burberry fashion show it was Christopher Bailey's last show Mm -hmm. the seat beside me was empty the doors were about to close and the person who then sat beside me was Edward Enenfell who had just been appointed editor-in-chief of British Folk I text one of my best friends and was like Edward fucking Enenfell is sitting beside me (laughs) and he texts me back and said do not let him leave without saying hello yeah and like the show was lovely, but I couldn't really concentrate because I was like trying to come up with a speech to like say at Edward. Uh-huh. And I tugged the sleeve of his jacket as the show ended, introduced myself, told him what I thought what he was doing around diversity in fashion was so important. I was trying to have a conversation around disability in fashion. Maybe we could meet. Like the pure goal of me to say something like that. He took my card. We did. He put me on the power list of the 25 most influential women working in the UK and Ireland. And then... I was contributing editor of British Vogue. And then in April last year, I got this wild email. It was like, NDA, um, can you give us a call? We need to talk to you about something. And I took the phone call in the middle of the street in Dublin. I was like, hey, what's up? And they're like, so 
We're doing the September issue of Vogue a bit differently this year. We're going to have 15 women on the cover. It's guest edited. We'd love for you to be one of the 15 women. I mean, drop the phone. What do you say to that? Like you're standing in the street in Dublin, you're like, <clears throat> and they're like, and you can't tell anybody. Like, you can't tell anybody until the magazine is on the shelf. And you're like sitting there going, I have the biggest secret in the world. Oh, and then you go to the gosh. shoot and you're there and you're there with like Adwa Aboa or Francesca Hayward or Chimamanda and go to Adichie. Yeah. It's just so surreal. You're such a lesson in um, how to live life. You know, like I said before, I just think people are so afraid. Yeah. And whether it's writing or acting or having a family or dating or whatever it is that someone wants to do in their life, we're all filled with fear about mm. failing. Yeah. And what you have done is just been fearless. And I'm sure, you know, you're trembling at the time when you're tugging <laughs> on his sleeve, but you've been fearless. You've seen an opportunity and you've taken it. And it brings me to the point of luck, which is what this podcast is about. And I do believe that luck comes your way. Mm-hmm. And then it's how you navigate that situation that makes you successful in that mm-hmm. situation or not. And you're a classic case of Anna Winters for rose away I sat four rows behind her at the Tony Awards and cowered into a sweaty <laughs> so and I, I just wanted to go up and speak to her so much I think I would have said something like go save her don't care or something I don't know useless I've got nothing important I think important she's the reason why I have a buff I've nothing important to say to her at all but I wanted to and I didn't and I really really regretted it afterwards and then there's you just like you know, getting off your seat, walking around, waiting for her to finish and just saying what you wanted to say. And it's so inspiring on a small everyday level and on a, you know, global taking over the world level. I think it's because, you know, being a little person growing up, I was always conscious that people were unsure of how to engage in a conversation with me. And it was that notion of not necessarily being left on the shelf, but out of other people's fear of saying or doing the wrong thing that I might end up lonely or no friends. So I think I had to cultivate this personality that was in a sense fearless where I would just go up to people and be like, hi, I'm Sinead. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful tool to figure out what kind of people people are yeah. in terms of how they respond with that. Well, I think I think for the majority of people who are kind and good, mm-hmm. it would just be enormous relief. Absolutely. Like, thank you for opening this conversation with me and allowing me not to feel awkward. You know, it's like, I, I think there's so many situations where someone is going through something when they're suffering from something when they have a condition where they're just different in some way mm-hmm. and people just don't know what to say yeah. um so no oh my god I love you so much I just <laughs> I've got so so much to talk to you about I find it a little overwhelming <laughs> um what so what's your daily life um it really depends I set up my own company in November of last year mm-hmm. you know in terms of how my career came about I was teaching and I loved teaching and simultaneously to teaching I was writing this blog and my blog came about because I was interested in fashion as a vehicle to explain to the world who I was without having to do it with words Mm -hmm. that if I sat in front of you in a leather jacket a polo neck jumper like Shiv from Succession Mm -hmm. and a pair of trousers and Gucci loafers you'd be like oh that's a that's a look yeah that's she's not a child but like what is that all about and it gave me this relief of the emotional labor that came with making myself vulnerable in public spaces. Uh-huh. But at the same time, I couldn't buy the clothes that would allow me to do that. Right. And that instigated this blog because nobody around me was interested in fashion in the way that I was. And then that then evolved in terms of finding a community of other people who felt left out in fashion, which is most of us. Uh-huh. And then that evolved to doing a TED talk. And then that evolved to like 
going to the World Economic Forum in Davos and everything that happened last year. And my day to day is largely unpredictable, but strategic, (laughs) which is an oxymoron. Like February is usually having the great privilege to go to some shows at Fashion Week. Uh Which one is that? I've never been to Fashion Week. Is that last? Is are they all in February? They're all in February. Can I be honest? Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't want to. I'm so. I'm just so intimidated by fashion. By the fashion world. I, you know that I'm obsessed with clothes. Yeah. But I find the fashion industry really, really intimidating. I don't feel like I'm a part of it. I did actually go to one fashion show once and um, I just I just don't feel, I don't feel like I can open conversations with people, mm-hmm. which is why what you're saying to me is so like, I don't know, just open conversations. But I, I really don't feel like it's my world, but I love what it produces. And I love, I'm a, I'm a consumer. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I don't feel comfortable in the fashion world at all. Never have. I've never tried to be really a part of it. And even when I had my own brand, I didn't try to be a, yeah. a part of the fashion, like that scene. And I find that, that's why I find you so fascinating. Because firstly, you have a deep lo- love of that kind of fashion, which is actually a different, mm-hmm. you know, I like, you know, polyester dresses from the 60s, <laughs> which is just very different. But um, listen, you also love Will- William Vintage, which is... I do, I do, I do, I do. do. Yes, and I love couture and I love the way that clothes are made. But, but I have, I weirdly, and, and this is actually, that my passion is old clothes and I love the history of it mm-hmm. all. So I do find myself just not being that interested in what's on the, mm-hmm. on the catwalks now. And when I go shopping... I go to a vintage shop. So it's not, it's just not my world. Mm. And like I said, I find it, I've never found that it welcomed me mm-hmm. as an able-bodied person who is in the public eye. Mm-hmm. And so when I hear that you're going to these fashion shows and being so bold and brave and talking to people like Anna Wintour and tugging on the arm of British editor of Vogue, I'm like, that takes some balls because I don't think it's a very friendly industry. I remember being really young and looking at the fashion industry almost through like this glass window Mm -hmm. and really thinking to myself, gosh, it must be quite lonely because they must not know each other. Right. There's this big industry and it's vast and how do they, they just, nobody knows each other. Yeah. And then you go and you realize that they spend two months together every year. Yeah. All together. Yeah. Um, I think like any group of people, there will be people that you immediately mesh with and gel with. And then there will be others that you don't. I've had some amazing experiences with people who work in fashion. So one of my earliest learnings, I was reading the New York Times. Mm -hmm. Vanessa Friedman is the chief fashion critic of the New York Times and an incredible voice in the industry. And about four years ago, she wrote a piece that said fashion and disability were the last relationship kind of left to conquer within access and equality. And within the piece, she didn't talk to anybody disabled. Four years ago, different era. Yeah. So I emailed her. I was like, hi. Hi. My name is Sinead. Yeah. I think it's really brilliant that in a platform like the New York Times, we are having a conversation around fashion and disability. But next time, it would be so wonderful we could amplify disabled voices within that. I was expecting Vanessa to either not reply or to tell me to go and jump an apple tree. Mm-hmm. She replied instantaneously and said, I can't believe I did this. Oh. Wow. Absolutely those changes will be made. And the first time we met was at the Christian Siriano fashion show Mm -hmm. in New York Fashion Week. It was the first show I'd ever been to. It was in the Plaza Hotel in New York. And I got there and I was sat second row and I was just thrilled to be there. Yeah. And she came up to me and she said, can you see? I was like, not really, but for the end, for the finale, I'm going to stand on my seat, I'm going to watch and I'll be able to see it then, but I'm not going to ask for permission because this is the plaza. 
And she said, it's not really good enough that you can't see. Like, you've been invited. You should be able to see. Come with me. And she marches up to a PR and she says, Sinead needs a front row seat. She can't see. And they were like, oh, there's none. They're all assigned. Yeah. And she was like, that's okay. She'll sit with me until you find one. Oh and she I comes down to her one. seat. She moves her deputy out of the way. She sits me down and she was like. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. But wait. And several minutes later, a PR person came running up and was like, we found Sinead a seat. And I was in the background of every Getty image of that show. But... For me, what that taught was the notion of allyship. Yes. As a fashion critic of the New York Times, there was no risk to her taking that act. She was not not going to be invited next season. But by leveraging the power that she has in the industry transformed my experience. Right. And I often think to myself, like, what are the moments in my life when I can do that for others? And it can be something as, as monumental as that or something much smaller. Yeah. And I have had so many incredibly positive experiences that in the fashion world like that my heart well you'll have to take me to your plus one one day yes we can pick <laughs> pick a city pick a show no but i think i think i'll choose paris <laughs> <laughs> and then my day-to-day is you know it's a mix of i still visit schools i still go into schools kind of four to six times a month and facilitate mm-hmm. conversations in schools about the fact that we're all different mm-hmm. and actually i think i'm really fortunate that my greatest challenge is immediately obvious because people have to right, figure it yeah. out. That, like, I look across from you, Don, and I have no idea what you struggle with. Mm-hmm. And we all do, yeah. right? Fear and and challenges are universal. But actually, how long are we friends before you have to say to me, actually, Sinead, by the way? Yeah. Whereas mine, my biggest one at least, you uh-huh. can manage it immediately. Yeah. And it's trying to create that learning in children and really build an empathy for all of us. And then I work with companies in fashion and in design to make both their business models and their retail spaces and how they hire people and mm-hmm. the types of people they hire more accessible. So my full-time job is irritating people for a living. You, I can't imagine that you irritate anybody. Also, you know, there's there's different ways to do this and mm-hmm. your approach is so um, gentle and clever and 
I mean, no one can argue with you. <laughs> As you started talking about children, my children, I can hear they're about to walk past because the car is parked back there. Mm. And I was saying to my um, little boy, Art, this morning, I said, so my French Sinead is coming and she's a little person. I don't know if you've ever met a little person before. And I was so interested to see what his reaction was to you yeah. because I knew you'd be cool there. Yeah. And I didn't know, and I kind of didn't tell him how to behave. I mm-hmm. didn't tell him what he should say. I was like, I've not seen him in this scenario. I hope he's not rude. Yeah. I hope he doesn't say anything embarrassing, but also he's a kid and that's yeah. what they do. Um, so... But I was really excited to see it. And actually, he got really playful. Yeah. <laughs> like, immediately yeah. playful with you. that they are running past. Um, but when you go into environments with children, mm-hmm. what's that response usually like from them? It can really differ. You know, you go into a class of four and five-year-olds, and the first question that they ask is, like, why are you so small? Mm-hmm. And I've been lucky that I've been given the language by my parents that my immediate response to that is, well, why are you so big? Right. <laughs> and giving the children a moment to think about it. Yeah. And their honest response always is, I don't know, I was born like this. And I say, well, so was I. And I'm like, okay. Or, you know, when you go up to the older ages in the school, I would get somebody very, very tall to stand beside me. Mm-hmm. And I would say, who's taller, Dawn or Sinead? And they'd go, Dawn. And then Dawn and I would sit down like we are doing now. Mm-hmm. And despite when we stand, our height being extremely different, when we sit, we're at eye level. Because my physical disability manifests in my limbs. Mm -hmm. My limbs are shorter. My torso is not. And that gives me permission to have a conversation about genetics with 12-year-olds. And I would say to the boys, you know, who are the tallest boys in this class? Who are the smallest? Why is that? Oh, well, my dad is really tall, or my granddad is, or my mother is. And it's this gateway to talking about topics and subjects that we think is really complicated that's entrenched in identity yeah and then when I'm kind of out and about it's a mix you know young children in particular are often super curious and will say things that embarrass their parents mm-hmm. like there's a little woman and I try to encourage adults in particular to humanize that conversation yeah. because often our instinct is to shy away from it and to remove our child because we think we're embarrassing the individual and ourselves instead of just like saying to art like yeah that's my French name like yeah. say hi and I was like, hi. And then probably immediately bored. Because he's like, oh, great. Well, that's it. And I did say to him just before you got there, I, I, um, he was watching TV, so not listening to me. But I was, just, I was said, and if you've got any questions yeah. about what it's like, you must ask. And um, anyway, I was, I, was just, I was just so interested yeah. to see what he did. And, you know, he's getting brought up in California mm-hmm. in, I know it doesn't seem sometimes, but the most liberal times we've ever lived mm-hmm. in. He goes to a very kind of open-minded, play-based school where, you know, um, and Chris and I are, you know, open-minded liberal parents. But so they, he'll, he'll, he's never going to be um, hidden from mm-hmm. diversity in mm-hmm. any way. But it's just so interesting when you see their reactions. And to give them the tools to yeah. like help with it. And often it's us adults who, as we were kind of saying at the beginning of this chat, that are so constricted yeah. by the discomfort that we feel to say and do the right thing. And I fundamentally believe in the power of political correctness. I think it's really important yeah. that we create a world where people feel safe in language and in culture. But I think it has been utilized in the wrong ways that makes so many people feel like, oh, well, I just can't say anything. And yes. it encourages echo chambers. Yes. Instead of just being like, I, I don't know what the language is. Mm-hmm. Can you help me? And also I feel like sometimes... everything is in the process of being corrected Mm -hmm. but sometimes you didn't get that memo yet and you genuinely say something that was offensive and I did it a few years ago I said something in the Guardian I I mean I I don't even want to say it again anyway I was I said I compared when I put too much makeup on 
that I looked like a transvestite, but I didn't say transvestite, right. I said trying. And I don't want to get into trouble for saying that again, but I'm just telling the story. I, firstly, The Guardian printed it, which was really unfair because they should have known this. And I said it kind of flippantly on the phone and then you see it in print. And I remember looking at it going, that doesn't feel right that I said that at all. And then Twitter started, you need to examine the hate within yourself and the prejudice within yourself. And I was like, oh my God, when I did this article, when I was, when I was describing and belittling my own face, I the last thing I had intended to do was to offend anybody. I had not, this was years ago, I had not realized how offensive that was mm -hmm. at that time. I know now, mm -hmm. I get it, I'll never do that again. Mm -hmm. And um, there are so many areas in this society of minority groups who feel attacked when you use rhetoric like that. Mm -hmm. And I get it, but sometimes people say it before they realize it comes out because mm -hmm. I was watching 80s movies the other day and some of the language in that, I was shocked just by this like 80s teenage mm -hmm. movie. About, and some of the words they were saying, I was like, God, we would never say that now. And it's taken a while for people to understand what you can and can't say. And that's why people like you are so important and why people are so important. But I feel this level of attack mm -hmm. when someone obviously messes up mm -hmm. in a very innocent way isn't helpful. It's trying to find the balance. Like for me, I always understood the power of language. Uh -huh. you know, language doesn't just name things in our society, it shapes it. Mm -hmm. And even among my own community, we differ in the language that we use to describe ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. I describe myself as a little person. I have friends who describe themselves as a dwarf or having dwarfism. Mm -hmm. And the politics of language is so deeply personal that often it can be confusing or it can be unhelpful when there are so many terminologies. And actually the best thing to do within that situation is not to assume you know what it is, but to ask. And yeah. I think we also live in times where you know, if you look at the transgender community and what they're currently experiencing within the media in yeah. the UK and increasingly in, in Ireland and in the US, that by using particular language, it can allow people or not to feel safe to exist. Yeah. And actually, how do we create a curriculum to educate people on what is most appropriate? All the while realizing that by the time that curriculum is implemented in yeah. society, it's probably outdated. What is the best platform? Like, is there a space where all of this language is deconstructed, mm -hmm. decolonized, and it's there? I'm not sure. You know, I had, when I was younger, I speak Irish. Mm -hmm. And in order to be a teacher, you have to speak Irish. Do you? Mm -hmm. And when so I cute. Yeah. And when I <laughs> when I was doing my final exam in school, like the first question that you get asked in the Irish exam is, tell me about yourself. And in the Irish language at the time, there was no word for a little person. So I had to describe myself in that exam as dwarf for right. fear of not getting the marks of saying an incorrect word. And a few years later, when I finished kind of school, I emailed the department within the government that was responsible for the Irish language and said, how do we get a new word put in the dictionary? And they said, well, what, what would you like? And I said, well, Dina Bjog is the direct translation for little person. They're like, okay. And it's now in the dictionary. But this again comes back to like, who's in the room, right? Who's in the room for those 80s films? Who is in the room in The Guardian who published them? Right. Why is there 
if everybody is just thinking the same, mm -hmm. who come from the same background, from the same perspective no, on the world, absolutely right. nobody's going to raise their hand and be like, actually, I don't think that that's <clears> the <throat> most correct. You're absolutely right. And by right. increasing the diversity and the inclusion, which is why I kind of focus in companies on looking at HR and how can we employ different yes. types of people, we're never going to change that system. And the outrage, I think, comes from this like power structure where there's always a feeling of those with power will oppress those without, even though that's probably never the intention. And we need to actually challenge that it's so simple it. isn't it it's such a simple it feels like such a simple fix so you walk into i mean companies that i work with um i walk in and I, because i i have a workspace here which is very diverse mm -hmm. and we have big conversations about race and very open conversations about race and safe space conversations yeah. about race where we can sit around and talk about it and ask what the language is and um you know to just just talk about it. it's been the most liberating conversation mm -hmm. for all of us mm -hmm. and um and so I'm so hyper aware yeah. of lack of diversity when it comes to race in workspaces and I work with you know quite a few companies I walk in I'm like everyone's white yeah and I and how do you feel that everyone's getting a voice in this and it's just like oh well it's not you know it's just the best person got the job it's like no guys there's structural we, biases yeah, here we have to we have to like well, strip it, this back and look at what's happening it here it comes it's back to you know I, I have this conversation with fashion companies all the time mm -hmm. that despite being an aficionado and delving deep into every article I can get about the system and the business of fashion <clears> if I saw a job I probably wouldn't apply for it because you can't be what you can't see mm -hmm. like the fear of failure and the fear of being told no means that we just don't put ourselves forward because yeah. of the history that has always existed. And it's, you know, what can, if we talk about allyship, like what can we do? You know, International Women's Day will be here with us soon. And it's like, well, undoubtedly specific people will be asked to participate in some events. And if you can't make it, what do you do? Right. Well, actually, here's five people who have a different perspective on the world who would be amazing on stage. Yeah. That takes 30 seconds. I know, God. It's um I'm so interested to see the world that my kids are adults mm -hmm. in and hope you know, we're part of a liberal society here mm -hmm. in California. I just hope that it goes in the direction that it looks like it's going in, but it's gonna be a long journey. Yeah. And thank God for people like you, Shane. <laughs> um so what makes you um what makes you laugh? What makes me laugh? Um I have a really sarcastic, dry sense of humor. I can tell. That's like deeply Irish. <laughs> uh, what makes me laugh is uh, all sorts. I think John Mulaney is incredibly I, How funny. do I not know who that is? I don't. Stop. You've Why? been living in the US a long time now. That's terrible. Who's John Mulaney? So he used to write for SNL. Oh, right. Okay. I'm right. Yes. <laughs> like anything like SNL. Yeah, like, that hasn't reached us. That hasn't reached us in Ireland. Yeah. That didn't permeate. Um, so he used to write a lot for Bill Hader and he's doing uh, stand-up now and he works with Nick Kroll a lot. Right. He has The Comeback Kid on Netflix as a special, but he's just done a kid special with comedy that's actually quite funny with okay, Jake Gyllenhaal. In terms of what makes me laugh, um, it's just those moments when you can be your whole self with friends uh -huh. and like you know humor comes about in that honesty i think and it's in spaces that aren't performative but just like really genuine or you mm -hmm. do something stupid or whatever and it's difficult to even pinpoint but the people i love most are the people who make me laugh the yeah. most probably because it's just a gift isn't it yeah and and there's a real honesty to it and i use humor in work really deliberately to try to 
demystify the discomfort that so many feel if I walk on stage. Or but you can see when, when I watch your talks and how disarming it is when you get up there and are funny. Yeah. And that relief laugh that your audience yeah. gives in the first few minutes where they're just like, oh, I'm with you. This yeah. is going to be... And it's, it's a language. It's a language that people understand, yeah. even if they don't understand the context. And in terms of like constructing a talk, if I'm asking people to like dig deep emotionally on something, mm-hmm. like thinking about if it's like abuse or harassment that I've experienced, immediately making them laugh after that moment is incredibly mm-hmm. powerful because if they sit within the memory bank of what they're kind of processing, they've forgotten about what you're talking about. Yeah. So using humor as this way to create momentum, but to disarm people and to give them a, a, a common language to communicate with you. Uh-huh. Is really helpful. Um, I love hearing those chuckles from the audiences. Um, so a question I ask everyone is, yeah. who do you consider to be very lucky? Very lucky. I think, well, me. Um, but I look at, I look at my parents. Yeah. And how they found each other and have had five children and have founded Little People of Ireland when I was 1997 and still voluntarily run it today and have created a community for people to discover people who look like them and a support system for families and... Are your parents little people? My dad is. I didn't know that. Mm, My dad is and my mum is not. Um, My dad grew up in the UK, he's a Mm -hmm. Um, and and that's how it came about and how they found each other was was so magical and how they continue to love each other, the five of us, tremendously mm-hmm. and do so much for others in a way that they don't even calculate. Right. Um, so I think they're incredibly lucky. And I think, like, there's so many people that I admire who are tenacious and ambitious and mm-hmm. undoubtedly lucky. Like, you know, I just want to be friends with like AOC and yeah. Jacinda Ardern and Phoebe Waller-Bridge uh-huh. and... God, that would be a good dinner, wouldn't it? I think it would be pretty incredible. Let's aim for that dinner. I'm just inviting myself. <laughs> we'll um, do it in your home. Yes, I'll host it. I, I will host it. I'll cook Irish stew. Don't fall off that yes, chair. It's fine. Um, so I... Um, I hope that one day I get the pleasure of sitting around your family dinner table when I'm in Ireland because you sound like such a team. Uh, We're great. We go on holidays every year together, just the seven of us. So I told Jamila Curtis the story and she wants to come on my family holiday, which is a ridiculous sentence to say. Um, (laughs) Isn't she wonderful? Yeah, she's a friend of ours too. I just, she, we go around and she bakes cakes. I really want to go to Dear John's for these tater tots. Yeah. And sit at her table. Well, there you go. I think that's what we should do. Um, but we could, Well, we could do the dinner party with all these amazing people there. At Dear John's. Yes. We've now outed ourselves. Oh, my God. We just we can't share the date publicly. No. Um, but, no, we go on holidays every year for two weeks. It's a surprise holiday. My siblings and I don't know where we're going until Stop we... Stop this! Until we get to the boarding gate. And then we get on the plane, and then there is a meticulous two-week itinerary planned out by my parents. And what kind of places? Um... Everywhere we've been, Hong Kong, Thailand, we've been Iceland, we've been driving tour of Italy, Malta. Your family. They're pretty great. See, I have to say, like, I obviously ask people who they consider lucky in this podcast, Mm -hmm. and I listen to you and I'm like, I consider you to be such a lucky person Mm -hmm. because all all it means, all happiness means is being comfortable in your own skin, knowing who you are and getting through life, feeling loved and... Mm -hmm. Um, supported yeah and my god that's that's you I 
I am so loved yeah by so many incredible people and I only hope they have a percentage of an understanding of how much I love them I'm sure they do I mean you ooze it yeah, every now and again. I'm an absolute tyrant, like I'm a Virgo, you know. <laughs> <laughs> when is your birthday? What's Virgo? The 19th of September. Oh, so you on the cover of Vogue for your birthday. It's not bad. Doesn't get better than that. <laughs> well, Sinead, honestly, I you just wafted into this podcast like this dream. I adore you I remember you sitting in that front row my first ever book I couldn't believe anyone came <laughs> and the fact that we're still in touch and now you are blows my mind you're incredible you are incredible thank you so much for having so me welcome. what a treat in LA I'm going to get onto that dinner as well <laughs> and thank you Yvonne for sitting so Yay! quietly <laughs> Thanks so much again to Sinead for talking to me on So Lucky. Sinead's own podcast, As Me with Sinead, is out now and well worth your time. Thank you so much for all your reviews and ratings for So Lucky. I've been bowled over by all of the love and it really does help other people find the show. If you're not already, please do make sure that you're subscribed so you get every episode as it drops. As well as the podcast, you may have heard that I have a book also called So Lucky and it's out now in print ebook and audiobook. Thanks again to Sinead, to producer Emma Corsham at Rethink Audio, to Fanula, Liz, Kim, and all the team at HarperCollins, and to you for listening. I'll see you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.